Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. My guest today is Paralympic snowboarder Nicole Roundy. As a child, Nicole was ambitious, energetic, and outgoing. Then, at eight years old, she was diagnosed with osteogenic sarcoma, a rare form of bone cancer. Later that year, she lost her right leg above the knee. As any individual touched by cancer, Nicole's life took a dramatic turn. Following the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympic Games, Nicole stepped onto a ski slope for the first time. The beauty, adrenaline, and excitement of three-track skiing captivated her, but something was missing. Deemed impossible due to the lack of prosthetic knee technology, Nicole found her passion in snowboarding. In 2006, she became the first above-knee amputee, male or female, to compete in adaptive snowboarding. Her accomplishments spearheaded global demand for prosthetic knee technology and played a fundamental role in the introduction of snowboarding to the Paralympic roster. Nicole represented the United States in the 2014 and 2018 Paralympic Winter Games and is a 24 times World Cup medalist. She's an aspiring author, a rescue dog parent, and a keynote speaker. That's a heck of a bio. As with our last guest, Lauren Rost, I had an opportunity to work with Nicole at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College in a 10-day program for transitioning military and elite athletes called Next Step. We got to know one another there, but we're going to learn a lot more about Nicole on today's episode of the Veterans Path podcast. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much, Don, and thanks for reaching out and, and putting this all together. Absolutely. How have you been? I'm I'm good, you know. It's uh, it's Christmas time and things get pretty busy right around this time of year. But um, I'm going home for Christmas this year, back to Utah, so that's exciting. Oh, nice, nice. So, and then what did you guys get up to for Thanksgiving? I I actually hosted Friendsgiving um, at my place, so nice. <laughs> that was fun. Um, I've never cooked a turkey before, so I had to ask somebody else to do that. I was <laughs> a little intimidated. It is intimidating. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife and I ended up spending Thanksgiving with friends across the street at the last minute, kind of last minute decision. We were just going to do a very low-key Thanksgiving. It was still very low-key, but we didn't have to do any of the cooking or cleaning up thanks to some some friends who invited us across the street. So we were uh, we were thrilled to and very thankful for that opportunity. Yeah, it's always nice when somebody takes a little bit of the stress out of things. For sure, for sure. <laughs> So before we get into our questions, I'm kind of starting every show with letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path, the the nonprofit that I'm working with, and kind of why we're doing this podcast, why we're doing this show. So Veterans Path, we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover peace, 
acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from, peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do at Veterans Path to increase support and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org. All right, that said, Nicole, let's get into it. Before we get into your athletic background, can you kind of start off by giving a little bit more about you? And I know in the intro that I recorded earlier, I covered that you're a rescue dog owner, um, you're a, a keynote speaker. Um, what are some of the things that you love about your, your rescue dog and some of the keynote speaking that you may have done or what are your hobbies, family makeup, that kind of stuff, just to let our audience know who Nicole is? <laughs> uh, you know, well... I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is just a, about an hour from the ski resort. So that's, um, I've always felt pretty at home in the mountains, um, hiking, obviously snowboarding, um, just having green growing things around me. That's, that's where I'm most comfortable in life. Um, so since I retired about a year and a half ago, I moved to Oregon. Um, I'm about an hour and a half from the coast, an hour and a half from the mountains. Um, I have hiking just five minutes outside my door, uh, but I'm definitely not snowboarding uh, as much as I used to. Well, it's, there's a lot I, to do out there in, in Oregon. I mean, I was just uh, just speaking with Lorraine, and she's also there in Oregon back home after being in Salt Lake for a while. I think she's also spent time at Copper Mountain. So, yeah, that's an outdoor mecca. It is an outdoor mecca, and I think that Colorado, Utah, and Oregon, Washington, actually, they're all kind of outdoor meccas, um, and you get a, a little bit of a variety of people with the same interests in all three of those states, so, and, and even, you know, a lot of the people that I've met here in Oregon have spent time in all of those states, so yeah. it's just, it is very much an outdoor mecca, just people who love being outside. Nice, nice, and that's that's right where you fit. So perfect. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned my my rescue dog. Yeah, that's, that's where part I was going to ask. The reason I adopted him um, was because I wanted to have a hiking buddy. Yeah. Which is actually kind of funny because he's a three-legged dog. Oh, perfect. Um, perfect. <laughs> he's pretty cute. Uh, he's a Shiba Inu Chihuahua mix um, with. Initially, I wanted a larger dog, but I met him, and I fell in love with him, and I love his personality, and he can do about eight miles of hiking on his three nice. little legs. No problem. So no so prosthetic he, for he, him. He can, huh? No prosthetic for him. He doesn't need it yet. Maybe <laughs> when he's older and arthritis sets in, but uh, right now, he's just living his best life. Nice, nice. And then I also covered that you've done some keynote speaking, and I know that you've done a couple of TED Talks. Uh, could you tell our, our audience what those were about? I did do a couple of TED Talks um, several years ago. The first one was probably my favorite TED Talk. I was talking about the prosthetic of or the, the technology of prosthetics 
and very simple toms and the difference between a prosthetic that can walk and a prosthetic that can snowboard. Um, and I think since I've done that task, the prosthetic technology has improved a little bit, but it's definitely not all that closer to, to what I'd like to see in the future. You know, I want like an Iron Man like, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe one day. Maybe, maybe. Uh, The second talk is more about my story as an athlete and how there's a lot of triumphs, successes, but also failures, and just how that journey, how you move through that journey, and, and how you come out um, feeling feeling successful in the end, regardless of the outcome. Right, right. And and actually, that's one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about is, is okay, so you're a world-class athlete, but you've, you've had one heck of a road to get here, but then you also mentioned some of the trials that you've had in your athletic career. Could you tell us about the trials that you had getting to where you are in athletics, and then once you got into athletics, some of the trials that helped to build you up, build your resilience, build your, your overall strength? I think um, to really kind of understand it and, and grab, get a grasp of where I'm coming from, um, we have to kind of rewind about 12 to 14 years. Um, at that time, the DOD, or for a non-veteran um, audience that might be out there, the Department of Defense was just starting to invest in prosthetic technology. And what happened back then was that they had improved the body armor of forces that were going out into the field. And so it was saving their lives, but it was blowing off their limbs. So we had all these veterans coming back, and they wanted to fit them with prosthetic technology and allow them to still have a high quality of life and, and hopefully stay in the service. Um, but they quickly discovered that the prosthetic technology that was available wasn't up to par. It, it really wasn't um, that great of technology. And so as a teenager, they had just started that initiative to start investing in that technology. So when I first approached the Adaptive Center and asked them if I could snowboard, the answer was just a flat no. That's, that's impossible. That's not something that above-the-knee amputees do. So why, why snowboarding? I think snowboarding because I tried skiing. I, I tried the whole stand on one leg and go down the slope um, when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I wasn't really strong enough to pick myself up off the snow. And that was frustrating to me as a teenager because I was just starting to become a very independent. Um, you know, I was getting ready to start driver's ed in a year and, um, you know, getting your license as a teenager. Right. That's, that's like your avenue to independence. That's my nightmare. Um, so I've got my two-year-old, and it, before right. I know it, she's going to be asking for that driver's license, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> but it is really important um, that you get to experience that as uh, as a teenager and as a young adult, um, and and just learning how to take care of yourself and and be self-sufficient in the world. Nice. So the whole lack of independence I felt when I stepped on skis was not appealing to me. Mm -hmm. I could see that. And there was something really exciting about 
snowboarding, that I would get to be on the snow, but I got to keep my prosthetic leg, which like a car to any other teenager, my prosthetic was my independence. That's, that's how I, I was allowed to navigate the world um, without people supporting me, without carrying these crutches around um, or being cumbersome or feeling like I'm, I'm holding people back. I saw so much more possibility in snowboarding than I did in skiing. If you could back up, you were how old when you were diagnosed? Eight years old? I was eight years old when I lost my leg. Okay. And I was 18, so exactly 10 years later was wow. when I finally got the okay to try snowboarding as an amputee. Wow. Okay. And at that point, you are, what, the first snowboarder as an amputee? I wasn't the first but I, I was very close to the first. <laughs> nice, good for you. Um, the, first, the first snowboarder uh, as an amputee, correct, and as an above the knee amputee, and you have to understand there's a very distinct specification between being a below the knee amputee and above the knee mm-hmm. amputee. It's much easier to do, to adapt the world as a below the knee amputee than it is an above the knee amputee just because your knee is very much the powerhouse of your body and it allows you to move in very unique ways and we have still not to this day found a way to build a prosthetic that does all of the functions of the human knee joint i I don't think i knew that it's a lot no (laughs) It's, it's not something i think you think about unless you have to right um, okay, so now you're snowboarding at 18 years old, and then you excel greatly at that and end up jumping into the Paralympics. Like, how, how long after you start snowboarding with this prosthetic are you at the Paralympic Games? Well, when I started snowboarding, the knee that I was, I didn't actually start snowboarding with a knee joint at all. It was, um, just a, it was a peg leg, basically, uh-huh. and I wasn't able to kneel down when I'd fall over on my snowboard. It was just kind of a tree falling in the forest, mm. like just timber, I'd just tip over. <laughs> um, so it was actually two years before I received my first prosthetic that they had used a air shock that you would find in a mountain bike okay. inside of a frame, and that became my my manufactured knee joints. <laughs> I, I, so I received that in 2006, which is when I started competing as well. Nice. Awesome. Um, we applied to become a part of the Paralympics in 2010, um, but we didn't actually receive that approval for two years. And um, So you say we... It was very, you know... When I say we, you know, it's a very grassroots, small population of athletes throughout the U.S., Canada. Um, You have to have, I believe it's 12 countries participating in a sport before you can become a part of the Paralympics. Oh, wow. So, yep, um, it can be really difficult to develop a sport to that level without Paralympic funding. Um, And I think, you know, bobsledding would actually be a great example of that there's some amazing paralympic bobsledders out there um, but they it's taken them quite a while 
to get the funding and the development to get the sport to where it will be ready to compete in the Paralympics. There's tons of things I don't know, but <laughs> you're, you're enlightening me here. So <clears throat> It's, you know, it's a small little world, yeah. but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's full of some very inspiring and amazing people. I imagine. I mean, you're, you're the one that I, I know, and you're phenomenal. So um, obviously I brought you on the show because you, you have a compelling story of overcoming obstacles um, both in life and in your athletics, and, and you practice a form of meditation. Um, but before we get into your, your meditation and your mindfulness practices, uh, I just want to take a second here to just pause and put in a quick plug for our sponsors. Okay, well, welcome back. Getting back into questions here with Paralympic snowboarding champion, TEDx speaker, and aspiring author, Nicole Roundy. Um, you and I discussed briefly your use of meditation to prepare for competition, but then, then you mentioned the fact that it has become much more a part of your life. Uh, why is that? I think... You know, I was I was kind of introduced to meditation through yoga. I, I adopted yoga as as a hobby and just part of my own personal well-being. Maybe the beginning to the, the middle of my career, and I actually thought that I was bad at meditation because <laughs> most of the time when they do a mini meditation session at the end of of, of your yoga class. They will say two things. They will tell you to close your eyes, mm -hmm. and they also often say, quiet your mind. <laughs> That's tough to do. And I was neither comfortable or good at either one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say that as a, as a side effect of having chemotherapy as a, as a young child, I am actually about 50% deaf in both ears. Um, it's high-frequency hearing loss, so I... I hear most spoken conversation quite well. Okay. Um, but I do read lips. Okay. And there's definitely a balance aspect associated with having some hearing loss. So I compensate for it by reading lips visually and also being able to just see the ground and see the wall and, and be able to create that perception of what is my surrounding through more of a visual relationship than depending entirely on my hearing. Right. So closing your so eyes. If was I'm difficult. in a room, okay. yes. <laughs> so if I'm in a room and someone's talking to me, I want my eyes to be open so that I can fully grasp everything that's happening around me. Right. Right. Um, which means that you know, unless I'm by myself it's very uncomfortable for me to close my eyes because I'm going to miss something. Sure. So what about this that we're doing now on podcasts where you can hear me uh, partially or how does this, how does this working for you? I think, you know, I've got these headphones in and uh, the volume turned all the way up. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, this is actually this is actually really great, and you know you have a low frequency voice, which helps me out quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. I'll, I'll I'll try to keep it low for for the show. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, 
you know, I've, I've adapted over the course of my life and I, I'm just like anyone else. I, I do the best with the assets that I do have and, um, accept the, the things that I don't. Right. So that's kind of how my introduce, my introduction to meditation came about is that I thought I was terrible. Yes, so the the other side of what you said you thought you were terrible was when they said to quiet your mind, and you were unable to do that. Um, quieting your mind doesn't mean turning it off, right? It just means to try, exactly. try to focus on one thing, and then when you realize that your mind is bouncing around to a million different things, realizing that and then coming back to the point of focus. For you... Um, how were you able to quote unquote quiet your mind or calm it down, slow it down, um, and realize that you weren't bad at meditating? You were just like everyone else, uh, and having that mind bouncing around, that monkey mind. <laughs> monkey mind, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think that you know there's some preconceived assumptions and 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 notions about what meditation is and. There's not really a one-size-fits-all as to how you can do it, but there are definitely some best practices that have been um, studied and reviewed and generally agreed upon by um, people who, this is what they do, they, they teach meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think the number one thing is that you need to allow your mind to wander. Meditation isn't about necessarily controlling your thoughts. I mean, if you tell me not to focus on something, I'm going to focus on that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, even if I try to think about something else, I'm going to keep coming to that, back to that same thing. Because what my brain is doing is it's saying, no, I need to figure out what's happening with this thing. Um, <laughs> so... I think when I sit down to meditate, and, and what works well for me is to use my body and, and my breath um, to kind of focus in and start my session. So I'll, I'll focus on that breath for a little bit. Not really, not controlling the breath. I just like to notice my breath. Right, right. I like to notice my breath and notice where I am. And just whatever my present situation is, where am I? What am I thinking? What am I doing? And then I don't try to control my thoughts. I I let them wander to where they need to go. And then at the end of the session, I usually come back to my breath mm-hmm. and my present situation. Um, and what that does for me is that it allows me to process my thoughts and what I'm thinking and feeling that day in a way that's productive and not reactive. Right. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I got into it was that you, you learn how to respond rather than react and using the kind of the cognitive part of our brain with the prefrontal cortex and not the reactive side with the amygdala. And that, and that, I mean, that allows us, honestly, I feel more energized in responding that way than reacting. If I'm constantly on the, the, the alert, then I'm worn out by the end of the day. So that's definitely, definitely helpful. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up like the actual, um, details of your, your practice 
uh, uh, Ryan Monahan from Tuck actually reached out over this uh, over this past weekend, and he said he would love to know like what people are doing for their practice, and is it is it contemplative, reflective exercise, or is it quiet, calming of the mind? And like you said, there's you know people do different things, and it sounds like yours is is kind of a mix. You you do a quiet time focusing on the breath, but then you allow your mind to do what it needs to do, um, being contemplative and reflective, and then coming back to that that quiet focusing on the breath again just before you wrap it up. Yep. I, um, you know, again, like I said, it's not about controlling anything. Um, for me, it's, it's more about allowing myself to process something. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you actually allow yourself you process those thoughts it means you're not suppressing them and I think one of the biggest reasons that we become reactive in our lives is because we are actually suppressing something whether that's an emotion that we've had for a while whether um, it's a control maybe we're suppressing control rather than accepting that we wanted to control something that we weren't able to so we weren't adaptable right. to a situation um, so, I mean, that's the biggest thing for me. Um, I think that what meditation allows you to do is basically create time in your life because you're not wasting as much energy processing things in the moment. You've already processed them. You've already gone through what's important in your mind and kind of isolated the things that you want to focus on today or in the present. Um, so you're not really worried about those things anymore and you're not stressed out about them right right do you use anything else um to either to mentally focus yourself and i know you said you're you're retired from snowboarding but i know you're still doing the keynote speaking uh you're aspiring author you're an aspiring author um do you use anything else to mentally focus yourself that's, I'm actually really glad you brought that up. I think that it's important to understand that, you know, there's a lot of other things out there that you can use to mentally focus yourself, but those things aren't meditation themselves. Um, visualization would be a one thing. Um, visualization is part of meditation, absolutely, um, because you're visualizing, focusing on something, whether that's you know, your current surroundings or whether that's a specific object. Sure. Um, it, it depends on you and what works best for you. I do, as an athlete, I use visualization quite a lot, specifically for racing. And um, I, I can, <laughs> you know, even today, you can probably mention a course and a year that I raced on that course, and I could probably draw it on a sheet of paper. Really? And that's just because you're visualizing the objects and every course is different and unique in its own way. And you visualize it to an extent that you not only know it in your mind, but you also know it with your body. Right, Um, so it's almost like developing that muscle memory almost in a way prior to ever getting on the course. Exactly. I think that they've, they've probably done a lot of studies about this, how that visualization is a much bigger aspect of success than the actual physical performance on the court. Right. Because it's it's very much a mental game. You have to know it's you with your body at the right moment, at the right time. 
um, and you know, a second too early, a second too late screws up everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. So it's, uh, that visualization aspect is very powerful in an athletic realm. Yeah. Um, and then you come to the actual process of doing something. I don't usually, I didn't usually meditate at the top of the course. What I did was a lot of breathing techniques and visualization. The breathing techniques can help you calm down your body and also control your adrenaline response. Sure. So you're not as stressed out. And, and what do you do? What do you like actually do for your breathing techniques? What, uh, what kind of methods are you employing? Oh my goodness, there's a lot of different breathing techniques. <laughs> Um, I think um, the one that comes to the top of my head is um, you're actually counting. Mm -hmm. You count up and then you count back down. And with each one, you breathe in, in your nose and out and then exhale out your mouth. Right. Um, right. So the example would be for three seconds. You breathe in through your nose for three seconds and exhale for three seconds. And then you breathe in for four seconds and exhale for four seconds. Nice. Um, that's an example, and there's a lot of different variations. And you try, you try to focus on breathing with your diaphragm as opposed to your lungs and your shoulders. Yeah, to kind of help um, to. I've also done, yep, <laughs> I've also done breathing exercises where you actually breathe through your nose and your mouth, um, but through your different sizes, sides of your nostrils. Oh, wow. Um, and while that. you're doing this, <laughs> it sounds really weird, um, <laughs> but once you, once you get the hang of it, <laughs> but while you're doing this breathing exercise, you actually raise your arms above your head in a V. This is definitely new to me. Um, okay. I'm going to try this out. <laughs> I wonder if I should try and it out right now. It's kind of a universal sign of victory. You know, how many times have you seen an athlete cross a finish line and raise their hand above their head in a beat? Right. Yeah, every time. Yes, I did it. Yeah, if, if they've done <laughs> right? well, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> so doing this right now, so if you can visualize me sitting in this podcast studio, I've got my hands in a V, trying to breathe through <laughs> one nostril at a time. Uh, I'll have to tell you later whether it's working for me. <laughs> it's definitely new. <laughs> I love it. Well, when you crash that finish line, you let me know. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So. There's a lot of things that I think that um, they've come up with. And I booked with probably six or seven sports psychiatrists in my year, in, in my career. Mm -hmm. So, and you know they all have different suggestions to things, and um, they're open to finding ways to dealing with with your environment and all of the factors in a competitive environment that you don't have control over. Um, and it, you know, I think it's interesting to see the correlation between athletes and you know service members in that regard. It's like sure. there's so many things you can't actually control. Um, so. Meditation is definitely very beneficial in being adaptable to your surroundings right. and only being able to control what you can control with right. yourself. 
Yeah, I love that. And and you're spot on with the, the correlations between military members, transitioning service members, or veterans, and athletes. I mean, we experienced that there at Tuck, at the Next Step program that we were both a part of, the, uh, the kind of the first day or so, all the veterans are standing on one side of the room, and then all the athletes are standing on the other side of the room. And by day two or three, we're all one class, and we all notice that we have a lot of similarities in changing from something that we've been focused on for our entire life and now transitioning to something completely different and changing, changing our mission, changing our focus, our purpose, um, almost changing our identity. And, you know, a lot of what people think about when they think about veterans and stress, injury, is people with PTSD, which absolutely that is definitely a thing, people who are exposed to traumatic stress struggling with that. But another side that people struggle with is transitioning from a, a job where they've had a mission, had an identity that we literally wear on our chest with the number of ribbons that we have that kind of show our, our uh, experience, our rank that shows how long we've been in, all the different badges that show what community we do. It translates almost exactly to what you guys as athletes do. You walk around um, for X number of years as an elite athlete and you have some number of medals up until that point and now you're transitioning to do something else. And you, uh, Nicole, I, you are transitioning to do something else. I know you mentioned you'd, you'd retired, you've done some keynote speaking. You're looking to do what in your next life? Isn't that the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I know that's a, a very loaded question. I built up a lot to it, but yeah. Um, You've, you've mentioned being an aspiring <laughs> author. Uh, should we be looking for your name on the bookshelf sometime soon, or, or, uh, or what's next? A lot of what makes things possible for you to do and, and be able to fully commit to something like, like writing a book, which, which is a huge undertaking, sure. <laughs> um, you also need a very strong support system. And the thing about support systems is that I think a a lot of times, definitely in the early days of my career, I thought, oh, well, some people are just lucky and they just had that support system. Chances are they developed that support system over time. Um, and sometimes you put a lot of time and effort into developing something and then it doesn't pan out, which has definitely happened to me in the past. I got, I got somewhere and I, I realized that I really didn't have the support that I needed to, to attempt it. Um, but I had made a commitment and I followed through anyways. It wasn't as successful as I wanted it to be, um, but I still followed through. And so I was proud of myself for that. Definitely, you should I be. I think that we all have the, <laughs> I think we all have the, the power to develop the support systems that we need, but understand that sometimes it takes time to develop that. As anything in this life, uh, it's really important to remember that every moment is a passive moment. You know, what is happening in my life today wasn't what happened yesterday, and it's not what's going to happen tomorrow. 
So even if I don't like my present situation, I have the opportunity to change it. I love that. And actually, one of our uh, founders for the organization, or the, or the two founders, uh, they, they, uh, they say, every moment is a moment. And that's exactly what you just said. So you kind of hit, hit the nail on the head. And, and going back to developing that support system, I think that is so critical to understand that it does, in fact, take time. I mean, we've got these support systems. You guys, as, as athletes, have these support systems that have been there that you've developed over, over years. We, as military members, have these support systems that, you know, through our friends, our coworkers that we've developed over years. And then we expect that support system, or we expect uh, another support system to be there immediately in place when we when we transition. And I think it's it's you you hit the nail on the head there. With it takes time to develop that support system, and it's going to look different. It's going to be different. But if we can allow ourselves time to figure out who we are, and then figure out what that support system is going to look like, and start to develop it through new friends, through new coworkers, uh, you know, through new communities that we may be living in. They are there. We just need to work to develop them and to grow them. So thank you for that point. I love it. Yeah, you know, I think it, it can be really difficult. And I've definitely been through several different chapters of my life with different support systems. And I'm in a completely unexplored chapter of my life now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's definitely a level of kind of starting over in that process of you know figuring out what that support system looks like for me and what I I need it for and what I'm willing to invest as a person as well right if you want something you have to be willing to give it in return absolutely um so you asked me you know what's next (laughs) I uh (laughs) I currently, I work in digital marketing. I think uh, I started computer coding when I was a teenager. So that was a great fallback for me and nice. a, a plan B, I guess you could say. Um, and I do definitely enjoy what I do. Um, but that's what I'm doing at the moment. And I think until I, I've developed that support system to where it will allow me to go back and, and write a book or you know explore the aftermath of my career um, or develop that side of, of my life more. That's just, I'm kind of happy taking a little bit of a, a backseat and relaxing for a little bit. There you go. Good for you. I mean, the fact that you're aware enough to know that that you need that and implementing that in in your life and, and being very intentional about it, that's good. Then that, having, that... having a dog helps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. I think... Uh, dogs, you know, rescue dogs. I've seen the bumper stickers uh, that say, you know, who rescued who. And uh, I, I fully believe that the rescue dogs save us more often than the other way around. I've, uh, we, we've got several rescue dogs, or we've had uh, several rescue dogs in our lives. We have one now, um, and she's been with us for 12-plus years. She's, uh, she's getting up there, but she's, uh, she's definitely one of our our rescuing dogs, not, we didn't rescue her so much as she rescued us. That is, it is funny how that works out, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he, uh, Jake is definitely um, rescuing me far more <laughs> than I rescued him. I love it. All right, well, uh, probably coming up on the end of our show, 
um, if you had one piece of, of information or advice that you wanted to share with our audience, what would that be? Um, I think I kind of mentioned it before. I think everyone kind of gets to point, okay, I've, I've been, I've been meditating for a while. How do I actually know if meditation is working, if it's even worth my time? Um, sometimes you won't know, mm-hmm. uh, or you won't notice it, but other people will notice it. And I think for for me, when I was younger and in, in the beginning stages of my my career, I was much more adaptable as a person. I didn't have as many expectations for myself. Um, the stakes weren't as high at a competitive level. And I was just able to take things as they came and just flow with them so much easier. What meditation did was help to bring that adaptability back into my life um, so that, you know, I'm not reacting as much. And if you're not noticing it in yourself, you know, you can ask people around you if they've noticed a change in you or um, maybe they will just mention that they've, they've noticed something right. that's different about you. Um, that's a really good indicator in that taking the time out for yourself and, and spending time to meditate is, is working. Yeah, I that's think the a great other point. advice that goes along with that, yeah, <laughs> I think the other advice that goes along with that is that it doesn't have to be 30 minutes. I typically only meditate for about 10 minutes. That's, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. Um, I will get, I get bored if I try to go longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, some people do really well with a 30 minute meditation, right? Um, but that's not required. Um, if you're comfortable sitting in your car and being in that position where your body is not distracting in your car, then take 10 minutes out and meditate in your car. You don't have to be in a specific place. You don't have to be in a specific, um, I don't know, area, yeah, yeah. <laughs> position, yeah. any of that. Uh, it's really something you can just take a minute and do. So in the, in the past two episodes, so this is episode number three, you're, you're the third person to mention that. So I, I hope people are starting to notice that there's a trend there that you, know, you can do longer meditations, um, but doing several smaller meditations throughout the day, several shorter meditations throughout the day, that can add up cumulatively to helping you out, to reaching that, that, you know, that level of focus and improving your focus and energy and productivity and reducing anxiety and depression and stress throughout your day just by doing those little snippets. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Thank you for, for that additional piece of advice there. Yeah. Um, as as you know, we do come, you know, I actually <laughs> go ahead. Now, as we're talking about this, I actually have one more suggestion. Oh yeah, please, please. Um, I think as creatures of habit, we we like to get into these robotic routines um, because it makes things simpler. But I I personally find that I enjoy my life better and I'm happier when I have this mix of flexibility with structure. Um, So I'm going to admit that I don't meditate every day. There are some days when 
I just I wake up and I know exactly what I want to do and I I just go after it. And those are day, usually days that are very highly productive for me. Um, and I get to the end and I realize oh, I didn't meditate and I didn't really feel the need to meditate. So don't, you should never get upset with yourself if you didn't do something because it's very counterintuitive to helping you progress in your life. If you don't meditate that day, don't worry about it. Tomorrow's a new day, tomorrow's a new moment. Right, exactly. Like you said, you know, every moment's a moment and, and kind of starting over. And, and it is counterproductive to beat yourself up. I mean, that's one of the things about mindfulness is, is being aware of the moment without judgment. Well, that being without judgment should transfer to not judging yourself either, not being judgmental of yourself. So, yeah, I, I love that. Thank you. Um, so if anyone had questions after the show and they wanted to get in contact with you, how would they go about connecting with you? Uh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn or Instagram. It's fine. I do have a website, NicoleRoundy.com. I don't um, update it all the time. <laughs> but you can email me through the website as well. Well, you're, you're busy in the outdoors with, with your dog and, and kind of resetting. So your, uh, your website not being up to date is, is acceptable. We won't judge you. <laughs> and then, it's not good because it's not my focus at the moment. <laughs> good, and it, and it shouldn't be. Well, that brings us to the end of our show, Nicole. It's uh, been so good having you on the show and learning more about you. Thanks so much. It's truly been so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much, John. I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and um, I hope that people find it beneficial or helpful or just encouraging. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. And, and I know you're, uh, you're retired, but we'll be looking for Nicole Roundy online. We'll be looking for your books or book when it comes out. Uh, but no pressure, no pressure, no. <laughs> it's, it's all in your own time. So we'll be looking for that. Um, for our listeners, thank you for listening to the show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. And we too are on social media. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Twitter. And remember, listeners, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.